Good morning. It's a relief to me to see many of the same faces here this week as last week, that the, uh, the math in Daniel 9 didn't so overwhelm you or turn you off that you showed up again. That's encouraging. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, where we will be this morning. If you played sports at all, or if you're a parent whose kids played sports, you've probably had that experience before a game when you look across at the other side to kind of size up your opponent. And if the disparity is extreme, it can be a really disheartening, unnerving thing. You know that moment you look across at the other side and you're like, oh my, they are so much bigger and stronger and they look more skilled and you're looking around at your own team thinking, this is not going to end well. Anybody had that experience before? When I was coaching soccer, uh, especially with younger ages, you just have to coach them. Just don't even look at the other side. Just focus on your warm-ups. Don't think about that because that can really get in your head. And the people of God have this long-standing bad habit of overestimating the enemies of God and underestimating the power of God. Just think back when, when Moses sent the spies into the promised land. He sent 12 spies They come back, and 10 out of the 12 bring a bad report. We hear that in Numbers 13, 31 through 33, when they say, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. All the people that we saw are of great height, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. I mean, they they looked at us like grasshoppers, and we started to think of ourselves as grasshoppers. That's how intimidated They were by these enemies, despite the fact that, remember, these are the people who walked through the Red Sea on dry land, saw the ten plagues that God poured out on Egypt. They experienced all of that and apparently forgot because some people were tall. But God does not want you to be ignorant of the strength and the nature of those who oppose God and his people, nor does he want you to be intimidated by them. And so in his grace, he has given us his word including his word in Daniel chapter 10, which was given to strengthen weak and fearful saints living in uncertain times. This word was given by God graciously to strengthen weak and fearful saints living in uncertain times. And so let's give our attention to Daniel chapter 10. We're going to read through the first verse of chapter 11 because I think that's part of this unit. And As is our custom, if you are physically able, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word out of our reverence and awe and humility and joy that God speaks to us. This is his word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, 
his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, One having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray. Father, you are not silent. You speak to us through your word. And in your word, you reveal to us great and marvelous things that we would not otherwise know. Flesh and blood cannot perceive these things. Flesh and blood cannot penetrate into the supernatural and the preternatural. We depend on you for revelation so that we might understand you and this universe you've made who we are in it, and so we pray that you'd speak to us now for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may be seated. So the main point of Daniel 10 is to strengthen weak saints living in uncertain times, and it does that by pulling back the veil between the spiritual and the material realms. It it reveals the reality of 
spiritual warfare that lies behind the great events of redemptive history. And we know that the intended effect of this passage is to strengthen and to embolden and to encourage the people of God because that's the dramatic effect that this vision had on Daniel and it's emphasized over and over and over again, almost like a cycle in this passage. Verse 8, so I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, as one translator says, more accurate paraphrase of that would be, I became a sorry figure of a man, just undone by this vision, and I retained no strength. And then, right after that, in verses 9, 10, and 11, there's this very physical, progressive change. Verse 9, Daniel falls on his face. Verse 10, a hand touched me and sets him trembling on his hands and knees. So his posture changes. Finally, he's commanded by the angel in verse 11, and he stands up. So he goes from face down to hands and knees to standing up. That's a distinct change. In verse 15, Daniel's mute, and he can't get a, a word out. Verse 16, the heavenly being touches him, and he speaks. That's a dramatic change. Again, verses 16 and 17, Daniel says he has no strength, no breath is left in him, but listen to what happens. Verses 18 and 19, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. Listen to these words. He said, O man greatly loved, fear not. That's the aim of this passage for Daniel and for all the saints of God who read it down through the generations. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and be strong. The ESV says be strong and of good courage, but the Hebrew is literally be strong and be strong. Be strong. Be strengthened. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. That word is repeated again and again and again. The strengthening effect of this word is what the Spirit of God means to do in the people of God through Daniel There is something terrifying and overwhelming about this vision. We'll come back to that. But in the end, even that is only meant to strengthen and to encourage. Twice in this passage, the angel calls Daniel a man greatly loved. Twice the angel says to Daniel, fear not. Three times he touches Daniel and Daniel is strengthened by that touch. So when we read this account of what Daniel experienced firsthand, may not leave us literally on our faces, breathless and speechless, but we can be sure that this was inspired by the Spirit of God for our instruction, for our edification, that God means to reveal something to us about the reality of spiritual warfare to encourage us, to help us whenever we find ourselves living in perplexing, discouraging, or trying times. So, I want to share with you four truths revealed in Daniel 10 for the strength of your soul in difficult times. First, there is a cosmic realm. Daniel 10 reveals there's an unseen spiritual realm full of intelligent, created beings. The the spiritual realm is something that we would not, could not know anything about by physical observation, by the scientific method, by human reason. The only way to know anything about it is through God's revelation. It's spiritual. It's invisible. It's immaterial. So you can't observe it in a lab. You can't run tests on it. And in Scripture, the reality of the spiritual realm is simply 
assumed. It's simply stated. It's not argued. It's not proven. It's not defended. It's just assumed. Daniel tells us in verse 1, he received a word, and he was wrestling to understand this word. And before he gets into the content of that, which we're all curious about, that comes in chapters 12, uh, 11 and 12, all of chapter 10 is taken up with just describing Daniel's encounter with this heavenly being who appears in awesome splendor. And that being describes to Daniel certain things about conflict in the cosmic realm. And none of this is out of place in the book of Daniel. We already saw in chapter 9, the angel Gabriel comes flying to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice. Uh, We see in chapter 7 and 8 that Daniel interacts with heavenly beings as well. Now, I feel kind of like Captain Obvious making a point like that. There is a spiritual realm. Cosmic realm exists, especially in church, speaking to what I assume are mostly Christians, right? You already believe that, but wouldn't you agree that angelic encounters like the one described in Daniel 10 stretches the limits of our modern minds? Don't you find it difficult to imagine and to believe? I think it exposes how much our modern atheistic materialism, the worldview that surrounds us, affects our minds and our thinking. Here's what I mean. Part of every worldview is a cosmology. Everybody has a cosmology. Your cosmology is what you believe the universe is, what it's made of, how it's structured, and what sort of things exist in it. And biblical cosmology begins in the very first verse in Scripture, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So when you think of the heavens and the earth, what do you picture? Probably, in our modern minds, we picture outer space and the earth. Outer space full of stars, right? Galaxies. And you've gone to school, so you know something about galaxies and stars and what they're made out of. But I think what we tend to picture betrays a kind of matter is all that exists cosmology. We, we picture planet Earth and outer space. And then when you think of outer space, what do you think of? My guess would be for most of us, we think of outer space as an infinite void, a vacuum, dark and cold with every once in a while some cold rocks and some burning gas here and there. But in biblical cosmology, the heavens, God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens refers not to empty outer space but to the realm above us, which is inhabited by heavenly beings. Listen to Colossians 1.16. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Those two sets go together. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Things in heaven are, are invisible, immaterial, spiritual things in this realm. So scripture uses the term the host of heaven to speak of stars and angels interchangeably. And I think C.S. Lewis captures this in that book from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's this interchange. In our world, said Eustace, a child, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And the answer comes back, Even in your world, my son, 
That is not what a star is, but only what it's made of. This is one of those worldview lenses that has the potential to like, change the way you look at everything. Let me quote at length from Doug Wilson in his preface to a book called Forgotten Heavens. I think this captures this. He writes, The Bible teaches that God, He makes His angels winds and His servants flames of fire. That's Hebrews 1.7, citing Psalm 104.4. But aren't winds just the motion of molecules in the air? This answer of the scientists is, of course, true, but it's not exhaustive. And then Wilson warns against the fallacy of nothing buttery. The fallacy of nothing buttery is when we reduce everything to nothing but something. The materialist can point out that a human being is made up of the following chemicals and then list them all. And within this list, he does not find the constituent parts of a soul or a spirit. Do they therefore not exist? The Christian answers clearly. The soul cannot be analyzed in that way. Hamlet is nothing but paper and ink, and yet we rightly feel that such an account of it leaves out the most important part. To reduce Hamlet to nothing but paper and ink misses everything. The materialist says that we are nothing but certain chemicals, and we beg to differ. He then says that the winds are nothing but atoms in motion, and we, for some strange reason, agree. He says the stars are nothing but flaming balls of gas, and we agree with this as well. Now, the Bible does not teach that all winds are necessarily angels. We're not required to believe that there's no such thing as an inanimate object, but the Bible does teach that there is intelligence behind many things that the modern materialist dismisses as processes, forces, or just plain matter. And I think that kind of materialism seeps into our minds. We imagine that the way God governs the universe is in this very impersonal way. But there's no intelligence in all of it. Man, Wilson says, is not rattling around inside a big, empty universe. The creator of all is not an impersonal force, and the creation reflects that. The biblical view of the cosmos is not the one of modernity, infinite depths of lifeless space punctuated by dead rock or chaotic fire. On the contrary, the universe is filled with intelligence and life. And so the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says the realm of spirits is no less rich and splendid than the realm of material beings. And it's beyond the scope of this sermon to get into all that the Bible says about angels, but Daniel has an encounter with this heavenly being. And that's not everyday life. That's not the norm. But God does mean for us to know that this realm is real. In fact, every Lord's Day when we gather and worship like this, it would be appropriate to have some awareness that what you are doing here is being observed by angels. Hebrews 12, 22 says, but you have come, speaking of the gathering of the church, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. When we gather in a cafeteria like this on folding chairs with pipe and drape, does that thought go through your mind? Innumerable angels in festal gathering, that's what's happening here around us. We, we don't see it with our physical eyes, but we know about it because God has revealed it to us in his word. So Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 that it's through the church 
through the church, through the preaching of the gospel in the church, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There is more going on here than meets the eye. Second truth revealed in Daniel 10, there is conflict in the cosmic realm. Verse 13 says, the prince, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, in this context, prince does not refer to earthly human princes, but to heavenly beings, or what scripture calls in the New Testament, cosmic powers, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. That's why verse 13 differentiates the prince of the kingdom of Persia from the earthly kings of Persia. Also, the archangel Michael himself is referred to as a prince, the prince of the people of God. But the point here is that there is a conflict between these angelic authorities. And in verse 20, the angel says, now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. The implication is to fight with me. Verse 21, he says, there is none who contends by my side except these, uh, against these except Michael, your prince. So the language of contending and fighting and warring and battling is all throughout this. And the archangel Michael appears again in the New Testament. Revelation 12, and he's waging a war. Revelation 12, 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So scripture's clear, not only is there a cosmic realm, but there's conflict in the cosmic realm. There are fallen angels who are in rebellion against God and in opposition to the people of God. Paul calls them cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6, 12. So, to those who affirm the sovereignty of God, as we do, the thought that this angelic messenger to Daniel was withstood, detained, held up for 21 days, may raise an eyebrow or two. How could an angel of God be held up for any amount of time? But this is no different than the fact that redemptive history unfolds on earth through living beings who think and act and who sometimes rebel against God, either obey or disobey God, and yet all of it happens under God's sovereign rule and reign. I mean, think about it this way. Once upon a time, they lived happily ever after is not a story. But the fact that in between once upon a time and happily ever after, the pages are full of conflict, characters are engaged in, that does not detract at all from the authority of the author of the story. And so even though there's conflict in the cosmic realm, Daniel 10 reveals this assuring truth to us, that the outcome of redemptive history, including all of its conflicts, visible and invisible, the outcome of redemptive history is so determined by God that the angel can say to Daniel in verse 21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. It's written. The end is authored. And so we have the pleasure of living in a story full of conflict, visible and invisible, with an outcome 
that is determined by God. God does not want us to be naive of the reality of spiritual warfare. He wants you to know there's more going on in history than meets the eye. Third truth revealed in Daniel 10. There is a connection between the cosmic and the earthly realms. Verse 2 says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. So why is Daniel mourning here? One of the most remarkable things about the time and location of Daniel 10 is that Daniel is still in exile, but this is the third year of King Cyrus. And in the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus gave a decree and sent Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem. In the first year, this is the third year, and Daniel is not in Jerusalem with all the exiles who are returning to rebuild Jerusalem. He's still in Babylon. He's still in Babylon. And back in Jerusalem, all was not well. The Jews there encountered opposition. They had enemies who thwarted their plans, who rose up against them, and their work on the city and on the temple came to a screeching halt. And so it's possible that Daniel, hundreds of miles away in Babylon, is mourning and fasting because the people of God are facing opposition in the physical realm. There are real enemies here opposing their work of rebuilding the temple. And so Daniel is seeking favor from God on their behalf. Now notice the timing of the events here. Daniel tells us twice in verses 2 and 3 that he had been mourning and fasting for how long? Three weeks. Three weeks is 21 days. So listen to what the angel says to Daniel in verses 12 through 13. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. That's true for every child of God, every time you pray, Before you even ask, God knows what you need. He hears you when you pray, even if you don't see immediate answers. The angel says to Daniel, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. The exact amount of time Daniel's been mourning and fasting and praying. So if you're ever discouraged because you're praying and you don't see anything happening, there's more going on than meets the eye. Just don't stop praying or trusting God. 21 days he's withstood, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So there's some connection between Daniel praying and fasting on earth and angels of God warring in heaven. I just think when I pray during the day, how rarely I think about that reality. Does that not blow your mind? I mean, we don't know exactly what the connection is. We just know there's some correlation. We see struggle on earth We don't see the cosmic fight there except when God pulls back the veil like this in Daniel 10 so that we know there's more happening than meets the eye. And that's supposed to encourage Daniel and us. But there also seems to be a connection in the other direction that that the thrones and the dominions and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are real governing agents who have some connection with empires on earth. So the cosmic princes of Persia and Greece are connected to the earthly empires of Persia, and Greece. And the archangel Michael is called the prince of the people of God. Daniel 12.1 calls him the great prince who has charge of your people. Then in chapter 11, verse 1, the angel says to Daniel, he throws in this comment about in the first year of Darius, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So apparently when Darius invaded Babylon and took over there, an angel of God was part of that. That was the will of God to punish Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. That's mind-blowing. So so whenever you see battles between good and evil, 
on earth, what you can observe with your eyes. When you see struggle between truth and falsehood being waged on earth, you can be sure there is also spiritual warfare happening in heaven. And that reality is not supposed to frighten you or intimidate you. It's supposed to give you confidence. Just consider 2 Kings 6. There was an enemy king in Syria who hated Elisha was trying to capture him, could never find where he was, finally got some intelligence about Elisha's location inside of this city. And so he sent his horses and his chariots and a great army to surround the city. And, and when Elisha woke up in the morning, Elisha's servant looks out and he sees the entire city surrounded by the enemy army. And he panics. He's terrified and he cries out, Alas! Listen to Elisha's response, 2 Kings six sixteen. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That phrase, that line, should just be engraved in our minds and our hearts. Whenever you look out at the world, just know that what you see with your eyes, the truth is always, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and he said, O oh Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the city is surrounded by the enemy army in the flesh, and the enemy army is surrounded by the army of God in the spirit, and so Elisha is not worried at all. In the third year of King Cyrus, Israel is like nobody on the world stage. Exiled people, no land, no temple. In comparison to Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, these empires that are coming and these empires that are going to abuse the people of God, Israel is nothing. But in the cosmic realm, the, the angel, the prince who has charge of Israel is actually stronger than the princes of all of those empires. And so things are not what they seem. There's more than meets the eye. Fourth truth. There is a conquering king, and he rules over all. I think it's worth asking, why did God reveal these things to Daniel? What good did it do for him? What effect did this have on Daniel? At a time when Daniel's mourning and fasting, when his prayers to him look unanswered and Israel's floundering back in their land, their, their attempts to rebuild the temple are thwarted, God revealed to Daniel the nature of this spiritual conflict in the heavens. And God allowed Daniel to see and to feel the power and the splendor of those who were fighting on his behalf in answer to his prayers. The presence of this heavenly being who appears to Daniel is so awesome that Daniel's companions who didn't even see the vision are overcome with fear and flee to hide from it. The, the picture I imagine, have you ever been to one of those air shows where the, the Navy Blue Angels perform? The, my favorite part of a Blue Angels show, usually the diamond formation is out in front of the crowd distracting you as they line up, and unexpectedly, one of the solo planes comes from behind at like 700 miles an hour, which is just under the speed of sound, so you don't hear it coming at all, just like 100 feet off the ground, 
And the, the sound is so terrifying. I mean, I think some people have to change their pants. That people have to pick themselves up off of the ground. That kind of sound just strikes fear into people. Try to picture. I mean, it wouldn't it be amazing if we could see what Daniel saw, but just try to picture in your mind's eye what he experienced, what he describes in verses 5 through 6. Everything about this heavenly being is radiant light. A body like beryl, if you don't know what beryl is, it's a translucent gemstone. So just think of a gemstone that's refracting light and flashing and sparkling and gleaming. That's what his body looked like. And his face, that looked like lightning. That's hard to picture. His eyes, torches. His arms and legs, gleaming and polished bronze. Everything about him is light, and his voice is like the sound of a multitude. So if you've ever been to Target Field, especially if you've been there when the Twins hit a walk-off home run, or if you've been to U.S. Bank Stadium when the Vikings score a touchdown against the Packers in the fourth quarter with no time on the clock, just imagine that sound coming out of one being's mouth. You would fall down too. And some take this to be a vision of God or even maybe a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus which is compelling because the description here really does sound an awful, like, uh, awful lot like description of the glory of God in Ezekiel 1 or the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. I find it really compelling, but I'm not quite convinced for a few reasons. One, this messenger says that he was sent to Daniel. God isn't sent by anyone. He sends his messengers. Second, the messenger needed help from Michael to overcome the prince of Persia. So if that is God, then we have to switch who's talking later on through the rest of the chapter. Third, Angels do appear in impressive glory throughout Scripture, like Revelation 10.1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, <laughs> and his legs like pillars of fire. So it's not out of place in Scripture for angels to be described in these kinds of ways. But even if this is just an angel, it's appropriate for us to recognize that the light, the brilliance, the splendor, the glory is a reflection of the glory of God. And whatever encouragement that was to Daniel to see such a mighty cosmic power coming in response to his prayers on behalf of the people of God, you have even more grounds for hope and encouragement than Daniel, even if you don't see an angel with your physical eyes. From our vantage point, on this side of the coming of Christ, we see and we know way more than Daniel knew in his limited perspective as an Old Testament prophet. That is, we live on the other side of the decisive victory in all spiritual warfare. So we understand spiritual warfare in a way that Daniel did not. Let me quote again from Doug Wilson in a different book, Heaven Misplaced. He writes this, Tragically, many Christians believe that spiritual warfare is conducted as though Christ never died or as though his death is historically irrelevant, a blip on the radar, but basically everything goes on just as bad, just as messed up as ever, just as hopeless. But this is not what the Bible teaches. Now he cites John 12, 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. This is Jesus speaking. Now, 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. 
And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. That makes the incarnation of the Son of God, took on humanity, lived a perfect life, suffered the wrath of God in your place, died on a cross. That is the pinnacle of all spiritual warfare, the decisive victory that was waged and won on your behalf. When the Son of God died on the cross, Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are cosmic powers. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And He did it at the cross. So what does that mean? What what does that mean in terms of spiritual warfare? What's, What's happening in spiritual warfare now? We have a timeline in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27, which says, then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, the Son, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's Paul's vocabulary for cosmic powers of evil. So when does the end come? After Not before, but after Jesus destroys all of these powers. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So so that means when Jesus comes back, the second coming of Jesus, that's after he has defeated his enemies. He must reign. He is reigning now and he must go on reigning now, doing what he's doing now, which is destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So when he returns, that's when death itself will be destroyed. The dead will come forth. We will be raised with glorious bodies to enjoy him forever on this earth, world without end. The death of the Son of God for you brings to light the most glorious mystery in all all history, seen and unseen, heaven and earth. When Peter speaks of your salvation, the grace that's been given to you, Peter says that prophets like Daniel, they, they were moved by the Spirit of God to predict the sufferings of Christ. That's the climax of it all. And then Peter says that the things contained in the gospel are things, this is 1 Peter 1 verse 12, things into which angels long to look. Just think about your salvation for a moment and consider what Peter says. Angels themselves, cosmic beings like this with power and glory and light that would drop you on your face, they are curious about your salvation. And it has their rapt attention. So Paul says again, I quoted earlier Ephesians 3, in the gospel the unsearchable riches of Christ are made known to cosmic powers. God makes known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places his wisdom through the church. What's happening right here is the thing that those beings are paying attention to. Why? Because it's only here. Because it's only in your life that the mercy of God is made known. You know when angels rebelled against God? 
He did not save them. He didn't become an angel to save them. First Peter, or 2 Peter 2 says, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. So he didn't save them, but he saves you. And so they watch with wonder the display of the mercy of God, the grace of God in your life. And so when it comes to spiritual warfare, this Christ, this conquering king, this gospel is all you need to know. It's all you need to know. What's the armor of God in Ephesians 6? It's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes made ready with the gospel of peace, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, shield of faith. That's all you need to know. Some people get all caught up in like complex strategies for territorial spiritual warfare and what's the demonic power of this region and let's see if we can discern that and then rebuke that spirit and pray against that. Daniel's not doing any of that here. He's not talking to bad angels. He's just praying. God's doing all of that warring. And he's just supposed to know God's warring. His angels are warring in the heavens on his behalf. What does Daniel always do in uncertain times? He just, he prays. That's what we've seen throughout this book. And in Christ, you have more reason for confidence and certainty than Daniel even knew of in his day. The weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians 10.4, are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So, how is it with your soul? According to Ephesians 2, when we walk in sin, we are enslaved to sin, we are dead to sin, and we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. But God in his mercy transfers us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. And that's possible for you, for all who trust in Jesus alone, who turn from sin in repentance and trust in this conquering king who will unite all things, seen and unseen, in heaven and on earth, into one and deliver that kingdom to the Father forever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we marvel at you, who is like you among the gods. In all the heavens, there is none so great, so awesome, so beautiful, so powerful. Would you open our eyes to behold more of what your death and resurrection mean? for the cosmos. Our salvation, that, that we will never cease to be amazed that you save us, that you have mercy on us. And that you set right everything that's wrong in the entire universe. Every rebel power will be brought into subjection under your feet. Jesus, you are ruling and reigning. You will do so until every last rebel power is conquered. And so we pray that you would do that. Do that in our hearts. Do that in us today. Conquer idolatry and sin and unbelief. We trust you. 
and we cling to you as our only hope, our conquering king. Be exalted in us, we pray.